The Holy Gospel according to St. John, the 20th chapter. Glory be to thee, O Lord. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of anyone, they are forgiven. If you withhold forgiveness from anyone, it is withheld. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. This is the Gospel of the Lord. Praise be to thee, O Christ. Alleluia, Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Alleluia. I'm beginning to wonder what it is like the first time you toss your keys to your kid. We're getting close, closer than I'd like to admit. What's it like the first time you toss your keys to your kid and you watch them drive off down the road and you wonder what's going to happen? I wonder about that because I know what it was like when my parents tossed me the keys. Don't ask them how many car wrecks I had and how many cars I wrecked in the first year of driving. I wonder what it's like to be on the other end of that, to be the one tossing the keys. It must be all kinds of fear and anxiety and trepidation. You know, I think many of you know what that's like, to hand over the keys and not really know what's going to be done with those keys, hoping that all of the lessons will have paid off that all of the rules will be followed, that that liberty, that freedom, that authority would not be abused. That's what you hope for. And that's what I wonder. I wonder what that's like. That is what is happening today in our gospel lesson. Jesus is handing over the keys. Not the keys to a car, but the keys to the kingdom of God, to the kingdom of heaven. Here's how it's put in the large catechism, in the small catechism. We have this question that comes in the section on confession. And here's the question. It says, what is the office of the keys? The office of the keys is that special authority which Christ has given to his church on earth to forgive the sins of repentant sinners, but to withhold forgiveness from the unrepentant as long as they do not repent. Jesus is handing over the keys. Again, not the keys to a car, which is bad enough on its own, but the keys to a house, the keys to a kingdom, 
The key is to eternal life. That's what Jesus is handing over. And it is shocking. It's a shocking thing. I think we often overlook how alarming this is. Some people react the first time they come into church, a church like ours, and they hear the pastor stand up and say, In the stead and by the command of my Lord Jesus Christ, I forgive you all your sins in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Lots of people, the first time they hear that, react appropriately. They say, who gave you those keys? Who said you could do that? Doesn't that belong to God alone? That's what the Pharisees said to Jesus. It was shocking enough that the Son of God, the God-man Jesus, went around forgiving sins. So at least two times we have stories where Jesus forgave sins. There was that moment when the friends of the paralytic had laid that poor man who could not walk, they laid him in front of Jesus, hoping that Jesus would heal him. And the first thing Jesus said to him was not, rise up, take your bed, and walk. But he says, son, I forgive you your sins. And everyone around him was shocked. They said, who is this who thinks he can forgive sins? It's only God who can forgive sins. And of course, that was the point that Jesus was making. To show you that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins, he turned to the man who was lying on the ground and said, I say to you, take up your bed and walk. And he did. The same one who can heal the sick and raise the dead, he can also forgive sins. But it was shocking. It was surprising, especially for the people who didn't like Jesus. Why would he get to exercise this authority? Why, do, why does God give that into his hands? This guy that we don't like very much, who says all kinds of things that are disagreeable, whom we'd rather send away, whom we're going to crucify, how can he forgive sins? That was shocking enough. And they were right to be shocked. If Jesus was just a man, then he had no business forgiving sins. But he did what his father had sent him to do. That sending, that's so important. Jesus didn't come into the world by his own volition. That is to say, he didn't come because he had a bright idea. He came because his father sent him and sent him to do this important work of forgiving sins, ultimately on the cross, but also declaring that forgiveness to anyone who would listen. He was doing what his father had sent him to do, and that was shocking. But it's more shocking still what happens today when Jesus gives those keys, when he gives that forgiveness to the church. He'd made this clear earlier in his ministry, twice, He says to the disciples, I'm giving you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. And this is how he puts it. He says, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Twice he said it. Twice he said, you get to open and close that door. Now, lesser men and scoundrels would start to giggle with glee. They would think to themselves, this is great. I love to be the gatekeeper. I want to be the one who decides who's in and who's out. And occasionally the disciples kind of acted that way. The sons of Zebedee, the sons of thunder, they wanted to cast down fire from heaven on that poor Samaritan village. They were excited to exercise these keys, to lock some out and to let some in. Far better would be to be shocked by it. You're giving those keys to me? You're asking me to open and close this door? You're letting us say things on earth that you will honor in heaven? That is shocking. It seems like a really bad idea. Do you know what people are like? (laughs) People who Jesus gives these keys to? We shouldn't have any business exercising these keys. It seems like a really bad idea. But listen again to what Jesus says. As the Father has sent me, even so... 
I am sending you. And he doesn't mean it in the sense of just like, well, my dad sent me, and so now I'm going to send some people out because sending is kind of an enjoyable thing to do. He says, no, in fact, in the very same way, just as my father sent me to do the same work that my father sent me to do, even so, I am now sending you. To the disciples and to the whole church, he says, this is your business. You didn't choose this task. You didn't ask for it. In fact, if you had, we would wonder. He says, I'm sending you to forgive sins and to withhold forgiveness. It's Christ who does this. It's Christ who gives the keys. It's Jesus himself who hands over the keys to the kingdom of heaven. And he does that because he needs for everyone to have access. Jesus sends the apostles, he sends the church into the world because, as St. Paul wonders, how else will people hear unless someone tells them? How else will people have their sins forgiven unless someone forgives them? How else will the benefits, the blessings of Christ's body and blood given and shed on the cross, how else will that reach the hearts of poor sinners unless someone comes to them and unlocks the door? And so he sends his apostles, he sends the church, he sends us, he sends ministers to do this work. That's really the only thing, the most basic thing that we are all about. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. In order that we might obtain this faith, that we might believe the promises of God and have our sins forgiven, Jesus hands over the keys. And it is shocking. It should make us uneasy. There was a pastor in the 1500s who talked about the dangers that come with having the keys to the kingdom of heaven. And of course, there is danger for those upon whom the keys are exercised, right? What if you lock out the wrong person and you let in the wrong person? That's bad enough. But he says the real danger is for the ones who are wielding the keys. What if you use them wrongly? What if you begin to use them for your own sake? What if you begin to think that you are in the place of God. To avoid that, in order to understand what our task is as Christians in the church with the keys of God, we should listen carefully. Listen carefully to what he says and understand the work that he has given us to do. The keys are for two purposes, closing and opening the door. Closing and opening the door. And this is serious business. You know how serious it is. Imagine... Imagine how important it is to keep the doors locked under certain circumstances. Now, this is going to sound silly, but when the kids are rolling around in the mud, we lock the front door because <laughs> they have to go in through the porch and take off their muddy shoes, right? You've got to keep the door locked so that you don't let all of that mud into the house. Likewise, it is so important to have the door unlocked when it is frigid and the wind is blowing and the snow is coming down and your kids are outside without shoes on for some reason. It's important to have the door unlocked. Now, those are trivial examples, but this is how Jesus puts it. He talks about being locked in or locked out when he tells a parable. He says to someone who is asking whether there will be many people in heaven or few, he says, strive to enter by the narrow door, for I tell you, many will seek and will not be able to. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door saying, Lord, open to us, then he will answer you, I do not know where you came from. And then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. But he will say to you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. 
In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out, and people will come from east and west and from north and south and recline at table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some are last who will be first, and some are first who will be last. That is worse than letting the mud into the house or locking out the children when they are cold. Being left outside the kingdom of God, that is dreadful. What could be worse than that? You know how important these keys are. Now, in order to remedy the problem of misusing these keys, there are many who think that we should really just open the door, open it wide, that really the keys amount to just a free pass to everyone. Look, we're all sinners. Everyone sins, and Jesus forgives sins, and so it's all going to be just okay. We'll leave the door just swinging open in the wind. Now, that sounds really nice. In fact, that sounds very Jesus-like, doesn't it? Just to leave the door wide open. And I think that left to our own devices, apart from these words that Jesus gives us specifically in the scriptures, that's what we would think is the right thing to do. Just leave the door open. Let everyone in. But Jesus has said otherwise, and here's why. Think about what it's like to go to the doctor. When you go to the doctor, you need the doctor to diagnose what's wrong with you, your sickness, and then to apply the treatment that actually will help your sickness. Leaving the door wide open, just unlocking the door and letting anyone come in, in some senses like going to the doctor and just hoping for a lollipop and a sticker, as though that will actually make you well. But the fact is that the door must be opened for you. And there are some for whom the door must be closed and locked. What's the doctor supposed to do? He diagnoses the sickness and he applies the remedy. To some, he gives medicine that isn't painful at all. Some receive medicine that takes away their pain. But to others, the treatment is painful. When you've got a headache, he prescribes some Advil or tells you to go and buy some Advil and takes away the pain. When you've got a broken bone that's begun to set in the wrong way, he says, first of all, this is going to hurt a bit. And he breaks it again so that he can reset it. The treatment the doctor gives depends on the patient and on the illness. Whether the door should be opened or closed depends on the sinner. Depends on your condition. This is what Jesus is talking about. Why on earth would you ever withhold forgiveness from someone? Why not just forgive all sins? Isn't that what Christ came to do? Well, there are two conditions that a sinner might find themselves in. Two conditions, and you heard it again in the small catechism. Listen one more time. The office of the keys is that special authority which Christ has given to his church on earth to forgive the sins of repentant sinners, but to withhold forgiveness from the unrepentant as long as they do not repent. There's a difference between being a penitent sinner and an impenitent sinner. Here's the difference. If you say, I am not sorry for my sin, if you do not desire to do better, if you do not desire to leave your sins behind, if you are not grieved in your heart that you have broken God's law and disappointed your Heavenly Father, then you are impenitent. You're not repentant. If you say, I like my sins, or at least some of them, sure, I'd be glad to get rid of most of them, but this one or that one I want to hold on to. I'd like to continue to indulge this. I don't really need this one forgiven. Then you are impenitent. That's not what repentance looks like. 
This matters a great deal, you hear it every Sunday, when I pronounce the absolution. I say, upon this your confession. We don't spend a lot of time focusing on those words, but you should hear them carefully. Upon this your confession. What have you just said the moment before? He said, I, a poor, miserable sinner, confess unto you all my sins and iniquities, all of them. I want to leave all of them behind. I don't want any of them anymore. In spite of how much pleasure they may give me, in spite of how much I might delight in them, in spite of the ways I might rationalize them or make sense of them, I want to leave them all behind because I believe, I believe what Jesus says, that they mean hell for me. Upon this your confession. If when you hear those words, you are holding back some of your sins from God, then you are impenitent. And the absolution is not for you. Your sins are not forgiven. If you want to hold on to some of them, your sins are not forgiven. And there is only God's wrath and hell in store for you. It's a dreadful thing. It's terrible. But it's so important that you know that. Because that is how God works repentance in our hearts. He does not work repentance in our hearts by gently suggesting that we do better or try harder. By gently suggesting that things might be a little fairer for us if we would side with him. But he works repentance in our hearts by telling us that every last one of your sins, even if it's just the tiniest one that you're holding on to, boy, I really love to tell tales about my neighbor. Boy, I really love to filch that Snickers bar from the store. Boy, I really love to get paid in cash and not pay my taxes. Boy, I really love to do that. If you hold on to those things, even the tiniest ones, God's word for you is wrath. God threatens to punish all who break his commandments. Therefore, we should fear his wrath and not do anything against them. That's the binding key. That's the key that locks the door. That's the key that puts you outside in the cold, outside where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. That is not where you want to be. And so that is why Christ has given his keys to the church, so that you can hear those words and repent, so that you can say, yes, indeed, that is what I deserve for my sins. Yes, indeed, as much as I delight in them, as much as my flesh longs for them, Christ has something better for me. Upon this, your confession, what is it? This is what it means to be penitent, to be sorry for your sins. It's to look at your heart and see nothing but sin and evil. It's to look at your life and long to leave your sins behind. It is to long for and look forward to that day promised to us by Christ when we will no longer be tempted to sin, misled by the lies of the devil, fooled, by the desires of our flesh. It is to long for perfect love. That is what repentance looks like. And that is when the absolution is the most glorious thing. Absolution is simply the forgiveness of sins. In the stead and by the command of my Lord Jesus Christ, I forgive you. Now here's the key. If you think that when I say those words, it's just my opinion, or that I'm just opening the door wide for everyone, anyone who comes along can enter in, then those words aren't very comforting. But if those words are the words that come into your heart at the moment of despair, when you recognize what hell looks like and what God's wrath looks like and how much you deserve it, if that's 
when you come to those words, I, a poor, miserable sinner, if that's when you come to those words and hear that Christ has forgiven you and he wanted to make sure that you knew it and so he sent me to declare it to you, then those are the most precious words that you could imagine. We asked this question on Monday, Thursday when we did the service of corporate confession and absolution. Do you believe that the forgiveness I speak is not my forgiveness but God's forgiveness? It's not because of any qualifications that I have. It's not because I'm especially good at forgiving sins or especially good at saying the words. It's because Christ sent me. It's because Christ sent the church to do this work, to open the kingdom of heaven to all who would enter in, to set free repentant sinners from all of their sins. And that is what you've got. That's what happens every Sunday. That's what happens day in and day out. As often as you need it, you are set free from your sins. Think about it. The disciples were there behind closed doors for fear of the Jews. Their world was all upended, and even though they had heard the reports that Christ had risen from the dead, they were still terrified. And Christ came and he spoke to them, peace, peace be with you. Peace be with you. That's what we need. Who doesn't need peace? Which of you looking at your lives would not say, peace is what is lacking? If only I had more peace then I would be okay. If only I had more peace, then the worries and anxieties of life, the fears of life would not bother me. If only I had more peace, then I could be certain and confident. If only I had more peace, then I could love the way that I'm supposed to love. Christ came to the disciples in that room and he spoke peace to them, but he did not want them to be the only ones who had that peace, and so he sent them. As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. And down through the generations, think about that. 2,000 years later, we are still speaking that very same peace. It's not a figment of our imagination. It's not a pipe dream. It's not a hallmark sentiment. These are the words of Jesus, the Son of God who died for you and rose again. Peace be with you. Your sins are forgiven. Truly, truly, I say to you, Jesus said earlier in John, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send, receives me. Whoever receives the words of Jesus, from the mouth of his preachers, from the mouth of his Christians, from the voice of the church, whoever receives Jesus, receives the Heavenly Father and has eternal life. That's why the keys are so precious. This life is full of grimness and despair. I talked about it maybe a bit too much last week even. It's dark what this world looks like. There are lots of reasons to be sorrowful, lots of reasons not to be at peace. But Christ is here today, as he always is for you, to offer you eternal peace. Listen to him. Believe his promises. When your eyes tell you something else, when your eyes look at me and see a sinful man, how can that help me? Listen to Jesus. When your eyes look at one another and say, where is peace among us? Listen to Jesus. He's come into our midst and said, peace be with you. What could be better than that? It's the treatment that we need that lasts us to eternity. Christ has opened to us the kingdom of heaven. Alleluia. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Alleluia.